Hello and welcome to the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit. My name is Luke, and if you're a first-time listener and unfamiliar with this podcast, let me try and give you a summary of what Web Summit and this podcast in particular are all about. Well, what is Web Summit to start? Well, we're a company from Dublin that holds events across the world: Web Summit in Lisbon, Collision in Toronto, and Rise in Hong Kong. On this podcast, we're joined by leading academics, those at the forefront of tech and business worlds, cultural icons, influencers, and key global leaders to tackle some of the world's most pressing issues. For this episode, we look back on Edward Snowden's talk at Web Summit 2019. Edward Snowden, the man who risked everything to expose the US government system of mass surveillance, a name familiar to us all. We know the actions which have led him to living a life in hiding, but how much do we really know about the background and motivations which led him to take on these seismic societal actions? In this talk, Edward goes into detail about the story that has shaped his life, including how he helped to build that system and what motivated him to try and bring it down. Laura, at this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. I am a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit, and subject line you type is in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. In the end, if you publish the source material, I will likely be immediately implicated. I ask only that you ensure this information makes it home to the American public. Thank you, and be careful. Citizen 4. Sorry, I don't know anything about you. Okay, um, I work for... Uh... Sorry, I don't know who you mean. Oh, sorry. I, uh, my name is Edward Snowden. Uh, I go by Ed. Um, Edward Joseph Snowden's the full name. Snowden, are you listening? I can hear you. Can you hear me? So, <laughs> so welcome to Web Summit, Edward. So, um, let's jump right in. Let's have you take us all here to the moment where you decided, as a serving intelligence contractor, that you needed to speak to the public, you needed to speak to the world. What, what was it like in that moment? What drove you to it? It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> imagine that you worked at the CIA. Um, you followed the rules your, your whole life. I had never been drunk. I had never smoked a joint, right? I was, I was a square. Uh, my family worked for the government. I was going to work for the government. Uh, so you come from a certain kind of background. You're a certain kind of guy. You're, you're not that exciting, um, but you believe in, in the importance of rules. And on the first day you work at the CIA, um, you have to take what they call an oath of service. Uh, it's a very solemn vow uh, in a dark room, flags all over the place with everybody else that's uh, entering government service at the same day. Uh, and here you have to swear uh, an oath to support and defend not the agency, not a secret, uh, not even a president, but the constitution of your country uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
Now, fast forward uh, many, many years uh, after you've signed something else, uh, what's called Standard Form 312, uh, a classified non-disclosure agreement. It means you won't talk to reporters. Um, and many years later, you find that uh, what you are doing, what everyone at your agency is doing, is a gigantic conspiracy to violate precisely that oath you took on the very first day. And this is what I struggled with for many years and eventually drove me forward, is what do you do when you have contradicting obligations? To what do we owe our greater loyalty? To the founding documents of our society, to the Constitution, or to Standard Form 312? Uh, for myself, the, the answer was clear. Um, and when the government can act behind closed doors, when they can change the game without our knowledge and consent, uh, I believe the public has a right to know about that. Now, when you made that decision to pick your, the first loyalty to the U.S. Constitution, to the world's public, what was, you know, you handed over lots of documents to reporters and they spent months and years reporting. Now, you know no one's going to remember every story, every line. <laughs> what was the message that you wanted the U.S. public, the publics of the world, to take from what you saw and you disclosed? Well, there's, there's two large ones. Um, one is uh, technological and one is democratic. Um, when we talk about technology, uh, the primary distinction, the thing that drove me forward, the thing that chilled me, is that intelligence collection and surveillance more broadly was happening in an entirely different way. It was no longer the targeted surveillance of the past, uh, where the police or spies went, we have this person that we suspect is up to no good, uh, and so we're going to sneak into their, their home or their office, we're going to plant a bug, we're going to go to the phone company, and we're going to tap their specific line. We're going to listen to a link uh, that they talk to bad guys with. Instead, they begin watching everyone, everywhere, all the time saving as much information as they could, even for people who had done nothing wrong, even for people who were not suspected of doing something wrong, simply because it could eventually be useful, or maybe they wouldn't get a chance to catch it later, so they would prospectively uh, begin surveilling people before uh, they had broken the law. This is what I call um, the creation of the new permanent record. Uh, Systems were being created uh, that did this all the time in the background, and nobody in a position of power tried to stop it because it benefited them. And this is what brings us to uh, the democratic problem. The law didn't matter. The courts didn't matter. Your rights didn't matter um, because the system had redefined and, and compromised them and what they meant in absolute secrecy. And this leaves us with the question that I think we are still uh, dealing with today. What do you do when the most powerful institutions in society have become the least accountable to society? And I think that's the question that our generation exists to answer. 2013 was a long time ago. Six years and the world has moved quite a long way. It's not just the U.S. president that has changed, though maybe people will feel different about the surveillance powers that has. We have seen our attitudes to tech change. We've seen the giants change. You know, we have seen far more activity from Russia, from China, from other countries. Do you think the huge debate, the huge conversation that you started, how do you feel about the state of that six years on? Have we moved forwards or... 
are we moving back? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's a good question. Um, and this is the really the, the subject of uh, the memoir that I just wrote, that the day I published it, uh, the CIA and NSA sued um, to try to keep people from reading uh, because they don't like books like this being written. Um, I feel, looking six years on, uh, that the world is changing and we are at a point of primary vulnerability. Um, but I think as much as we see the anger rising, as much as I think we see awareness of problems uh, beginning to uh, develop, people are quite frequently mad at the right people uh, for the wrong reasons as they see this increasing predation uh, on all of us publicly uh, through these systems, whether we're talking governmental or corporate. Uh, yes, uh, these people are engaged in abuse, um, particularly when you look at a Google, an Amazon, a Facebook. But their business model is abuse. Uh, and yet every bit of it, uh, they argue, uh, is legal. And whether we're talking about Facebook or the NSA, that is the problem. That's the real problem. Uh, we have legalized the abuse of the person uh, through the personal, we have entrenched a system uh, that makes the population vulnerable for the benefit of the privileged. Now, you talk about how this collection is intrinsic to the business model of a lot of the companies we think about when we think about the internet. One of the main programs that, you know, maybe the most famous that was undercover, uh, uncovered thanks to what you revealed was PRISM, um, famously involving a lot of the biggest tech companies. Now, about three hours before that program was revealed, I was on the phone to one of the execs at one of these companies saying, what's PRISM? Why are you involved in it? And they were very confident in denying it. They didn't think <laughs> they were part of it. This was not some, no one is that good at lying. Not in tech, anyway. Uh, they thought they weren't. How naive do you think tech has been about how its business model helps surveillance and about how it relates itself to governments around the world? I think what we saw for each of those companies in their own ways, I don't think it was a collaborated uh, decision uh, across the industry, um, was an entrance into a Faustian bargain. Um, they, they had made the deal with the devil, as it were. Um, where they went in this way, in this particular circumstance, we are going to construct a, a data sharing method uh, for us to go beyond what the law requires uh, to do this government a favor, uh, because we believe this government is a positive force for the world. And I think we can all understand and appreciate uh, where that initial drive comes from. You want to believe the government is going to have the tools they need to investigate serious crimes, uh, to prevent acts of terrorism. But when we look at what these programs actually were used for um, and, and what the results of them were uh, over many, many years, uh, we saw that tools that had been intended uh, to protect the public uh, had been in many ways used to attack uh, the public. But the government's not going to tell um, these companies why 
in many cases they need this information. They're simply going to try to create those methods of exchange, those um, systems of uh, information sharing, as they call it. And ultimately what they're doing is they're deputizing um, these companies to act in what are increasingly quasi-governmental roles, uh, deciding what can and cannot be said on the internet, uh, deciding what can and cannot be shared, um, and ultimately uh, turning over perfect records of private lives on demand uh, to institutions that are no longer meaningfully accountable uh, to the public at large. So we're in the middle of something of a backlash towards a lot of big tech. And it's a strange backlash. Sometimes it's because tech is seen as violating privacy or acting badly. And sometimes it comes from governments for tech protecting privacy, encrypting things, and, you know, quotes, helping terrorists. Do you think this backlash towards tech, which for a while at least was seen as this force for good, this different uh, thing from big corporations, is that helping the surveillance era or is it harming it? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. It's a complicated one. I think the answer is um, both. Uh, technology is, is largely value neutral. Um, it is an amplification of individual power. But what is an institution than the accumulation of individual power are put toward a single purpose? Um, when we have new technologies uh, that are being used uh, by small companies, by non-governmental organizations, by um, human rights defenders and activists, to try to empower the public broadly and protect them from threats and vulnerabilities. We start moving in the direction of a uh, safer and freer world. Uh, when we see governments and corporations working in concert, um, we begin to see um, the birth of a complex between the two, where, where neither truly acts independently uh, or adversarially, but rather uh, they become the left and the right hand of the same body. Uh, what we see is the concentration of power. Now, when we have an institution uh, in, or institutions which were already powerful before, um, and now they are combining their powers uh, to control uh, or at least influence uh, what everybody who is outside of those institutions are able to do, um, that I think raises real questions of, is the ultimate benefit worth the cost? Because if you create an irresistible power, uh, whether it's held by Facebook or whether it's held by uh, any government, um, the question is, how will you police the expression of that power when it is used against the public rather than for it. If this is essentially the bad version of the internet, the dangerous version of the internet, what does a good version of the internet look like? What helps you build that? You know, we are speaking to you from within the EU, so is it something like GDPR? Do we have a panacea <laughs> there? This is a... Uh, uh, a good bit of uh, legislation in terms of the effort that they're trying to do. Uh, is GDPR the correct solution? 
Um, I, I think no, and I think the mistake that it makes is actually in the name, uh, the Gen General Data Protection Regulation uh, misplaces the problem. The problem isn't data protection, the problem is data collection. Um, regulating the protection of data presumes that the collection of data in the first place was proper, that, that it was appropriate, that it doesn't uh, represent a threat or a danger, that it's okay to spy on everybody all the time, whether they're your customers or whether they're your citizens, so long as it never leaks, so long as only you are in control of what it is that you've uh, sort of stolen from everybody. Um, and I would say not only is that incorrect, uh, but if we learned anything uh, from 2013, it's that eventually everything leaks. It's a bad strategy. So, but to just test you on that a little bit, one of the rare things with GDPR is it's got big fines. You know, you can have 4% of your money. Are there not some tech giants you'd like to see facing that kind of thing? Uh, absolutely. Like, this is the thing where I say it is uh, a good first effort, right? It is a low bar, um, and they have raised that bar, uh, and that is meaningful. What I'm saying is that it's not a solution. What I'm saying is that it's not the good Internet that we want, because even though the GDPR does propose, I believe, 4% uh, of global revenue fines for Internet giants, um, today those fines don't exist. Uh, and until we see those fines... Uh, being applied every single year uh, to the internet giants until they reform their behavior uh, and begin complying not just with the letter but the spirit of the law. Uh, it is a paper tiger. Um, and I think that actually gives us a false sense of reassurance uh, because these companies that are the ones who that fine is most threatening to uh, are also the ones with the most lawyers uh, who are able to undermine uh, the meaning of that law the most effectively. Now, of course, the room that you're speaking to here, this is a room full of tech entrepreneurs, of tech executives, of tech investors, maybe one or two regulators, but that's not the main crowd. What do you <laughs> sure. want them to build next? What do you want them to do next? What, what is the sort of positive thing that you could see from them for the next era of the internet? I think we need to consider uh, what the real problem is. Uh, what is responsible for this mood that we all feel, whether we're talking politics, whether we're talking technology, whether we're talking economy. Um, the public, uh, my generation, particularly the generation after me, um, they no longer own anything. Um, they are increasingly not allowed uh, to own anything. Um, you use these services and they create uh, a permanent record of everything you've done simply by having your phone uh, in this room on you in your pocket, not even using it, but simply having it turned on, uh, registers your presence at this event uh, because your phone's association with the Wi-Fi points that are around it, your phone's association with the cellular towers uh, that are around it. Um, and this is the thing that, that people miss. Uh, all of these companies, all of these governments go, oh, data collection, data protection. I mean, it's all very abstract. But uh, data isn't harmless. Data isn't abstract when it's about people. And almost all of the data that's being collected today is about people. Uh, it is not data that is being exploited. It is people 
that are being exploited. It is not data and networks that are being influenced and manipulated. It is you that is being manipulated. Uh, and right now, uh, the reason that is so, uh, and the reason surveillance and collection is so much of a problem, is because we have to trust everybody on the network. We have to trust everyone that we pass on this hostile path of the internet. All of the routers, all of the internet service providers that you cross. Um, if you have to trust Cisco or Juniper or Huawei or Nokia, uh, we have a problem because you can't trust any of them. They will all act in their own interest uh, rather than the public's interest broadly. Uh, whether it's a private company or a national telecommunications company, uh, it is an institution of power. Um, and our communications are vulnerable today to every single one of them until we change the model, until we redesign the basic system of connectivity in the Internet. Uh, we have more and more communications becoming encrypted today. Um, rather than asking people to trust you, rather than asking them to trust your service, as all of your ailing competitors do, show them why they don't have to trust you. All of the intermediaries... Uh, between you and the people that you're talking to are not in control of you. They do not understand your content. It is private to them. The only people you have to trust are the people that you're talking to, the people on the ends of the communication. And the reason that is important, even if you are for the NSA, even if you are for Facebook, uh, is that there are companies, there are laws that do not apply to these countries. There are different jurisdictions and the internet is global. The law is not the only thing that can protect you. Uh, technology is not the only thing that can protect you. Uh, we are the only thing that can protect us. And the only way to protect anyone is to protect everyone. Thank you, and stay free. Thank you very much.